Who are the best publishers in the industry? My name is Jonathan, and this is The Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about games as they'd like to know. We're picking up from last time, moving on from talking about designers to talking about publishers, the companies who do the work of turning those designs into the objects that go on your tabletop. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast. With me once again this week, the curator, Steve Tassi. Hello, everyone. Now, any game design obviously has to begin with the designer. The initial ideas that eventually become a cardboard box full of bits and bobs for playing a game have to be meticulously built from scratch by a very particular kind of mind, and we talked about some of our favorite minds in the field last week. But those ideas are just ideas until they get turned into a physical object you can play, and it's publishers who have the responsibility to make that happen. Steve, could you give us a sort of a quick rundown on what a game publisher contributes to the process? <laughs> um, so much. They contribute almost everything except for that initial spark of, of idea. Uh, because even once the designer has made the prototype uh, of what they think is a, a working game, the publisher has to take that and refine it and develop it. Um, they start with uh, choosing which games they're going to work on. Uh, you know, there are lots of designers out there and they all have tons of ideas and they're constantly pitching them to, uh, to publishing companies, either ones that they have relationships with or the, the dreaded cold call. Mm. Um, and so the publishers start by figuring out which of these games do they think are going to be successful. Yeah, which ones fit our brand? Which yeah. ones uh, do we want associated with our, with, yeah. our, with our company? Yeah. Uh, and then from there, they actually develop those games. So designer has presumably, you know, built a prototype, play tested it, uh, and refined the, the mechanics of the game. But the, de- the development takes that further. Um, sometimes it's let's change the theme of this game. Uh, and in doing so, sometimes that requires mechanics to change. Uh, other times it's just, you know, the theme is great, the rules are good, but we don't like the win condition, or it takes too long to play, so how can we streamline this? Uh, so many different elements come from development. And then uh, they have to replay test what they've developed. Um, then once the theme has been decided and they know what components are going to be in it, the art has to be created. And so the publishers drive that. They hire the artists or they have in-house crews who will sculpt the minis, who will do the paintings and or photographs for the cards, who will do the graphic design of the box, the, the graphic layout of the rules. Um, they make sure that the rules get properly written and edited. Sometimes they succeed at this. Other times they fail horribly. Then there's the actual manufacturer. They have... they. Publishing companies don't do the making. They don't. They usually don't own the factories. Yeah, they don't cut up the wooden blocks and and mold the uh, plastic pieces. But they do have to. Uh, they have to outsource that. They yeah. have to find the right factory to make the stuff. Then they handle the shipping and the distribution and the marketing. Um, the, it is their job to try to make you, the consumer, want to buy that game. And it's also part of their job to make sure that that game is available once they've convinced you that you want to buy it. So it's mostly the designer then that does the... Uh... Oh, yeah. He, the designer does most of the work. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I... Possibly the most important part of the work is sure, the designer, sure. In, but... The, they... the, the publisher can't begin to, uh, to do this epic uh, process until they have a design. 
But uh, once they do, I mean, it's it's massive. These yeah. these are these are large companies that have a lot of people, uh, and there's an enormous amount of work that goes into it. And that's why the designers get a relatively small portion of royalties compared mm-hmm. to the the gross uh, income uh, that the publishing house actually makes from selling the stuff. Uh, and oh, that's for, and that's to, as it should be. You yeah, know. C- compared to like an author of a book, for example. Yeah. So um, different publishers really do have very different approaches to these things. Um, different enough to give a particular publisher a specific flavor to their games. Uh, I remember uh, in the early days of uh, Days of Wonder, when Ticket to Ride was just coming out, this is the early Audis, the production style of a Days of Wonder game, that square box, which yep. has since become the standard. Yeah, it really um, has. The, uh, the the linen finish on the paper for the tokens, which has since become standard. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the style of cards, the, uh, the 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 attractive, bright, colorful board and layout of the box design and the high quality plastic pieces. Yeah, whether they're miniatures like the tanks and soldiers in Memoir Forty Four, or whether they're the trains in. Uh, ticket to Ride. The little brass they, bell that came with uh, Mystery of the Abbey. Yeah, they're nice pieces. They're, there's a quality has gone into it. Just as physical objects to handle, you know, that tactile angle. This is around the time when board games were attempting to sort of retake some of the space that had been owned by electronic games mm-hmm. at that point and creating this tactile experience, this visual experience was something that they were really struggling to to sort of to sort of gain ground on. Mm-hmm. And those early days of Wonder Games, and then shortly after that, Fantasy Flight and other publishers, uh, really did a lot to sort of move publishers to where they are now at the center of this whole process. Yeah, and even mainstream companies are in on that idea of heightened production value. Mm-hmm. The old copies of Risk had little plastic triangles and plastic asterisks as the, the soldiers. <laughs> that was and, my copy of Risk when yeah, I was little. Like a long time ago. And nowadays, uh, you have your molded figures. and yeah, little, little infantry, little cavalry, little cannons. And every different re-theme of Risk gets new figures. So the Halo Risk is very different from the classic Risk, very different from uh, Risk Legacy or Godstorm or anything. They they all have pieces that are unique to their themed version and uh, that's, that's a thing that we're seeing across the industry. Okay, let's talk about some of these publishing companies and uh, see if we can arrive at uh, a description of what their particular style is and what to expect from a title that has a particular company's logo on the box. Um, might as well start with uh, with the bigger old ones, Parker Brothers. <laughs> yeah, so Parker Brothers was stuff like Clue and... Uh, they had Monopoly. They had Monopoly for a while. Uh, Masterpiece, I think, was one of mm-hmm. theirs. Uh, so they're not really around anymore except in name they Mm -hmm. they got absorbed by hasbro um they were not generally uh complicated games um it was a different time yeah it was a very different time in gaming but they were they were designed for families Mm -hmm. Um, they were games that used simple mechanics like roll and move and you buy stuff with paper money. Um, every once in a while they'd do something that had a, a, a neat component in it. Um, for example, the inventors, uh, which had 
a, a patent device that had a bell. It was a dice tower. It had um, a, a chute that held clips in it because you would take your uh, invention cards and you would stick them in the slot uh, and and you'd pull it out and it would have a tag attached to it that had a numerical value on it and that would affect how successful your thing was. You would also drop dice down the top of it and they'd hit a bell on their way down and then spit out into a little tray and and you know that was for they uh, could afford to do. Yeah. They were the only only the big companies like that could afford to do these kinds of uh, big production type things, stuff like mm-hmm. Dark Tower or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then there are other large publishers like Hasbro and Mattel that sort of have their mainstream sort of area. They'll get their games into Toys R Us and Walmart and so on. But you won't see a lot of their sort of thing in stores that are dedicated specifically to games. Yeah. Um, then you have another sort of a mid-mass market area with games like uh, with companies like Pressman or University Games mm-hmm. that are creating stuff that's primarily designed around gifting. Yeah, these are not games that are designed to be played. They're just games that are designed to be purchased and then given to somebody for their birthday or for Christmas. Pressman especially has a lot of licensed products mm-hmm. that they They're very attractive for gifting. Yeah, they they spend the the budget that they have goes into buying the license to The Hobbit or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and pretty much zero thought goes and money goes into the development of the games. Well, they have to keep the price point low. Yeah, you know because uh, they, again, you have to consider the. Cost context where this is arriving. These are not things that are designed for players. They're designed for people who have a Christmas list or a yep. birthday list to take care of. Grandma and knows Johnny need... loves uh, the Lord of the Rings. Exactly. So... It has to be taken care of quickly and cheaply. Yeah. And so they're serving a very a very real purpose. And for the most part, these games will never be opened. But the people who tear the wrapping off them will be happy. And the people who see them tearing the wrapping <laughs> off them will be happy as well. Um and then you've got the sort of the old school um, when 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 the idea of game culture was becoming it's sort of in sort of modern form. You had Games Workshop in Britain, mm-hmm. and you had Wizards of the Coast in the United States. I think they have a lot in common in some ways. They were hobbyist. Well, games. Yeah, they were definitely hobbyist games. Um, they were different in some ways, but they they both have a. Um a collectible mm-hmm. component to a lot of their product. A sense of being games. a joiner, joining yeah. in, being part of a community of players. Yeah, lifestyle games, mm-hmm. you could call it. The, you you become a Warhammer player. You're become not necessarily you're not necessarily a gamer. I mean, all people who play games are gamers, but if all you play is magic or all you play is chess or all you play is Warhammer, you're not in the broader gaming community. You are in a very small portion of it. And you're part of a very specific in-group where people yeah. who are in that group recognize you as one of their own. Yeah. There's jargon and, exactly. and whatnot that you will be able to talk about that the average gamer won't unless they are also part of your lifestyle game. Now, Wizards of the Coast has since been purchased by Hasbro. This yeah. is a theme we're going to see a lot here. Wizards bought TSR, yep. and then Hasbro bought Wizards. So that's how Dungeons & Dragons is now owned by Dungeons & Dragons, a game that was reviled in the <laughs> 80s by uh, certain elements of uh, the right wing, certain elements of uh, faith-based communities, um, were convinced that D&D... Uh, was turning their children evil and into de- demon worship. And, the satanic panic uh, yeah. hit a lot of things. D and D was one of the targets. And so now and that rock and roll and that reviled game is owned by Hasbro, the <laughs> same people who make like the Easy Bake Oven and Barbie. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, Barbie. Oh, Barbie's Mattel. Mattel Sorry, Mattel, yeah. got that backwards. Never mind. But yeah, they they make Monopoly and D and D are owned by the same people now, which is one of the weird ironies of living in the age of corporate consolidation. And Monopoly is far more evil than D and D could ever have hoped to be. In terms of the kind of uh, behavior that it encourages, oh yeah. yeah. Okay, let's take it more up to, uh, to, to, to this century, more of a modern age. Um, I think we, we mentioned Days of Wonder before and what a big deal they were. Rio Grande Games is also an interesting case of a publisher that has a very important place in the history of modern board games. Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but their, their main um, raison d'etre was they found, they're based in, I think, Colorado, um, somewhere in the Rockies, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, but their job was to find European games. Mostly German games at the and, time. Yeah, yeah and, and buy the license for the North American market and develop them for North Americans, primarily by translating them into English, but also occasionally doing some other tweaks uh, and modifications to them. But they are the reason that games like Carcassonne Mm-hmm. are in the North American market. They're a uh, huge part of the reason why that whole style of game yeah. became was able to reach North America yeah. and consequently just sort of blow up and become what it is today. Yeah, they weren't the people behind um, bringing Catan to the West. Weren't uh, they involved in that at some point? And, then, and then Mayfair wound up picking it up afterwards? Um, as far as I know, it's always been a Mayfair label, but I, I could be wrong. It's, yeah, we should probably know our history a little bit better than this. But uh, even so, uh, games like Carcassonne, like El Grande, uh, almost all of the big German-style games that sort of became the uh, the, the critical mess, they ex- they were brought to the English-speaking world through Rio, Rio Grande games. Bonanza yep. was a Rio Grande. And that's that was a, massive. That's an Uwe Rosenberg, the same person who made Agricola. And La Havre mm-hmm. uh, and uh, no Caverna, Caverna, yeah. So um, Days of Wonder, uh, obviously their their over their importance can't be overstated. I think they were the ones who made these beautiful, pretty components and and beautiful, pretty accessible production into yeah. a big thing. Fantasy Flight Games, uh, alongside Days of Wonder, is a really interesting comparison too, because they started out doing stuff that looked more like a Wizards of the Coast or a Games Workshop type thing, but mm-hmm. they were a much smaller company yeah. with a lot less than we have resources to work with. Uh, but they had all this passion for these old Games Workshop style games, mm-hmm. and they wanted to bring that to a larger market. And as they got larger and larger, they were able to produce a much slicker, more Days of Wonder uh, mm-hmm. style components in games using themes that weren't something that Days of Wonder would do. Rio Grande yeah. and Days of Wonder mostly doing European style stuff, non-violent games, uh, mostly contemporary or medieval sort of games games with relatively pleasant themes yeah. fantasy flight would have dragons and blood and spaceships s- blowing spaceships each other up and, and all kinds of nerdy goodness nuclear uh, weapons tentacles <laughs> yeah. um and 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 their production values got to the point where there was this was the new bar yeah to get over and yeah they took they took the days of wonder uh idea of quality components and then melded that with the the concept that games are for gamers right. uh, and and screw accessibility. Uh, they they did they didn't really care if uh, if grandma could play the game. They but they saw the value of having a slick looking, well produced game. Yeah, a game that had a barrier to entry that would be a badge of honor for those who got over it. 
And it's like, nope, this is not going to be easy to learn how to play. But when you do, you're going to feel awesome because you get to do all this great stuff. Yeah, 10 or 20 years ago, the sorts of games that Fantasy Flight uh, currently makes would have been made with a whole lot of cardboard chits Mm -hmm. with with numbers and and a drawing of a military unit on them instead of having an awesome figurine that uh, you move around the board. And beautiful full-color art and stuff and lots and lots of dice. So um, Z-Man Games was a company that, uh, that you've mentioned earlier as well. Yeah. From humble beginnings, they grew <laughs> to become something kind of astounding. Yeah. Uh, now, I have a, a long history with Z-Man Games. Um, I designed a game called Grave Robbers from Outer Space and a number of sequels to it, which was Z-Man Games' very first non collectible game. They yeah, got, they got their started start doing Shadow Fist, right? Yeah. They sort of brought back a dead card game yeah. because they loved it so much and they wanted to be able to keep playing and keep having new stuff. So they exactly. said, All right, we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah, they, they bought the rights. They were fans of Shadow Fist. They bought the rights from Daedalus Games, which died uh, back in the back in the Late 90s, mid-90s, I, I think. 90s, yeah. uh, and so they just started doing this and hiring artists and and putting out more and more sets. And uh, so I came along with my card game, which was not a collectible card game. Uh, It was a standalone. And they took a chance on me. And uh, the game was very successful for them. The first game, I think we sold through four printings of... um, it spawned nine sequels, <laughs> not all of them as successful as the original game, um, and, and, but it basically gave them the the capital and, and the idea that, hey, we can do more than Shadow Fist. And I'm pretty sure they don't do Shadow Fist anymore. Don't think so, but uh, tell you what they did start doing, a lot of the stuff that Rio Grande began yeah. to drop the ball on. Yeah, they, they got a bunch of licenses. Uh, they they got some licenses that Rio Grande never had, mm-hmm. but then once they got known for being a Rio Grande style company of, of finding these great German games and bringing them over, they actually took over a few licenses. They took over Carcassonne um, and and some others, and uh, and they have become uh, quite a powerhouse in the industry. They um, they are no longer a wholly privately owned. Yeah, company they, now. they got bought up by the other big powerhouse. Well, they got bought by Philosophia, which, which, is, in a, turn, which is a Canadian company uh, that mostly did distribution, mm-hmm. not so much the publishing. Uh, and then Philosophia, they merged with Z-Man, became F to Z Entertainment, which then got bought by Asmodee, which is on its way to becoming the next Hasbro. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's Hasbro for hobby games. Exactly. It's Asmodee is very much the 800 pound gorilla in the industry at this point. They've bought up, uh, you know, plaid hat games. That's another sort of smallish company. They own fantasy flight as they well. They do. Exactly. Uh, all these, uh, plaid hat is another company that I think is really interesting with, as far as their style. Mm-hmm. Um, they really push towards incorporating narrative into yep. games in interesting ways. Games like mice and mystics, mm-hmm. uh, games like specter ops, Game, Dead of Winter. Dead of, of Winter. You know, really, uh, the, they love stories and they love the idea of bringing this stuff in. And similarly, over in Europe, we've got uh, Czech Games, which is sort of Vladikvatil's 
specific uh, and portal game which is Ignacy Trevichek's particular thing although each of them does do other stuff yeah. they're very much um, sort of led and inspired by the vision of a certain particular designer mm-hmm. uh, another really interesting thing uh, and finally with the advent of Kickstarter we've uh, seen a company called Cool Mini or Not mm-hmm. taking a very particular and somewhat controversial approach to publishing and that is for the most part their games don't just go straight to market they have the game basically done, ready to publish, and then they'll do a Kickstarter for it. Yep. And they'll have they a lot are of... sort of the kings of Kickstarter. Exactly. They'll have a, they've, they've really got it refined down to the max. They'll have zillions of stretch goals, and uh, they'll have a few really impressive exclusives for that. But then after the Kickstarter's done, then the game goes to retail. Yeah. And they are the kings of awesome miniatures. I mean, that's where the... It's right there in the name. It's right there in the name. Every game they do, pretty much, is full of... Lots of plastic. And uh, it's going to be really, really cool-looking plastic, yeah. too. I mean, at games Yeah, they like put Arcane. a lot of effort into into the look of their miniatures. Zombie. Uh, Zombie Side, Arcadia Quest, um, the others. Uh, Chaos, Chaos Ball, was Ball was one, one of theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, occasionally, though, they recently they have been sort of veering out into other kinds of games, with things like Bloodborne, the card game. That's true. And The Grizzled. Wow, that is a lot of publishers. The episode ran a little long. We could have kept on going. But if you're interested in modern games, there are so many different companies to check out, so many different publishers doing their own thing. We hope you'll enjoy your own explorations in that field. Steve, thanks for being here. This was fun. Thanks for having me. I love talking games. Yay. Snakes Cats is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. Opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. See you next week, folks. Game on. Game on.